I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 9, please. Acts chapter 9 this morning. It's amazing to me that this is our 27th prayer week, uh, that we have uh, been a part of doing this each year at the start of the year. Uh, for 20, this is 27th time opportunity for us to commit to the Lord the year and seek to to uh, draw close to him through prayer. There are a lot of reasons, and I've named them over the years. Uh, The longer list of them, I'll just highlight two uh, that I think it's important to keep in front of us. I I think the nature of life for us as believers uh, in the kind of world that we live in and the kind of state we're in, that is a pre-glorification state, uh, we don't have sinless perfection, is that we need regular reminders about the seriousness and importance of prayer. Uh, prayer does not happen uh, in, a, in a heart of indifference. It doesn't happen automatically. It is actually an effort by us as people and as us as a congregation to go against the grain, which tends to push us toward self-reliance, tends to push us toward a neglect. Right? That's why the scriptures talk about it in terms of discipline and devotion, sobriety and serious-mindedness, because the, the reality of it is uh, we can all drift toward independence, and, and churches can. I, I heard someone, I was listening to a sermon this week, and, and they described the American church using a boat metaphor, and, and that the American church uh, at some point made a shift between being a sailboat that depended on the wind of the Spirit to move it forward, to concocting motors of its own, thinking that it can propel itself with programs and PR and and all the things that you build a business with. That if you look at a lot of American Christianity, it really is more of a business operation and the strategies for Growing churches and planting churches are more like a business playbook than they are uh, utter and complete and visible dependence on the Lord. So one of the reasons we start the year this way is that we want to remind ourselves that we're a sailboat and we're not in control of the wind. So we have to cry out to God for fresh wind to move us forward, for God to do a work and express that through prayer. And that means it really does, and growing right out of that, is that it makes it unmistakably clear who is the source of all blessing in our church and in the ministries that we have. That that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Right. The, the only things that will be done of lasting eternal significance are done by the power and strength of the Lord. There's plenty, uh, and I think 2020 probably was a great illustration. I said it at the time. Lots of, lots of big, like huge activity hubs that were called churches just completely blew up because everything that was driving it was, was activity. And all of a sudden, a lockdown completely shut the activity hive down. And, and lots of churches like that just emptied out. Because people were there because it was just a part of their social fabric. It was just a connection of how they fit into the social culture around them. Or they were there because they were getting something for themselves. And once the spigot was sort of turned off, they took off to go wherever they wanted to. Right? And, and I think that we have to recognize uh, that, 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 that we, can't, uh, we cannot afford to think like that for ourselves, for our families, or for our congregation. 
that unless it's the Lord doing the work, then, then everything really ultimately will prove to be vain. It'll be wood, hay, and stubble. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend my whole life and arrive at the judgment seat and watch everything go up in smoke. I have absolutely no interest in that. I really want to see the Lord be pleased with us and, and what he's doing for his glory among us. In our first prayer week, way, way, way back, it was built around challenging us on seven specific things that I'm not going to preach on today. I just want to remind them because I thought it would be great just to remind us of what kinds of things we were pushing. There were seven commitments over the course of that week that, that I preached and called us to, and I'll just remind you what they were, just maybe to uh, have a sort of derivative challenge for you. There was a commitment to personal prayer. Specifically, it was, I will spend at least 20 minutes each day in fellowship with God through prayer. A commitment to evangelistic prayer. I will make a list of the unsaved for whom I am burdened and pray for them at least once each week that God would open their eyes to the gospel. Commitment to missionary prayer. I will pray for each one of our missionaries at least once each month. A commitment to congregational prayer. I will pray with a group of believers from our church at least once each week. Commitment to family prayer. I will pray for and with my family every day. A commitment to intercessory prayer. I will make a list of those for whom God has burdened me to intercede. Friends, families, ministries, and I will intercede for them on a weekly basis. And then a commitment to thankful prayer. I will keep a record of God's works in my life so that I can praise and thank him for his wonderful grace. I, I, I would still commend those commitments to you, right? That you're personally spending time in prayer each day with the Lord. That you have identified the people that God has placed you among that don't know him and that you're praying for them that doors will open up and eyes will open up, that you'll pray for those who our church has partnered with to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that you'll be a part of praying. And the way I framed that 27 years ago was because sometimes people have schedules that don't allow them to be in one of the scheduled prayer meetings. And I wanted you to know and remind us that we actually don't have to be in a scheduled prayer meeting to be praying together with believers. You can actually set up your own prayer meeting, uh, hopefully not against ours, right? But it might be you can't be here on a Wednesday night to make prayer meeting. It might be that we've got you busy on Wednesday night and you can't be in prayer meeting. But you could set up a time where you pray with other members of our assembly uh, at a time that works for all of you. Right? Nowadays, you, you could do it on, on the phone. You could do it getting together. But are you praying with other believers for the work of God in each other's lives and beyond? Making certain that our families are, are surrounded with prayer, that we're praying for them and, and with them, that we're lifting others up before the throne? Do you, have, do you have a regular pattern of intercessory prayer? Right? People that you know uh, that God has burdened your heart for, and you pray for them regularly. It doesn't mean they're the only people you pray for. Right? But, but you've made it a point to say, I need to pray for these people because God's put, put that burden on my heart. And I think since prayer is regularly said to be done with thanksgiving, right? Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with a spirit of thanksgiving, right? Or be anxious for nothing. And then it talks about prayer with thanksgiving. I mean, prayer, prayer is supposed to come from a heart that is, is captivated with gratitude about God's grace. So are you remembering, are you identifying and remembering the things that God has done so that you can thank him for them, so that they can be a point of praise, but also be a point of encouragement? God, you have done this in the past. I'm asking you to do 
this again. Right? If we are forgetful about God's blessings, we forget his works, it, it has a negative effect on our heart. And at the very core of prayer week, really, is a deep commitment to the priority of prayer in our personal and congregational lives. Right? That, that it is not something that just uh, should be at the bells and whistles kind of thing of our life. We've got everything going great, and maybe if we tack on a little prayer, it'll be good. But that it's actually at the center of it. That it is the thing that ought to be the engine of our lives and the engine of our congregation. And what I'd like to do this morning is just remind us of that. Uh, This is going to be one of those ones that we used to joke around, actually, had opportunity to talk to Dr. Towns this week, and he's doing well and sends his greetings, loves our church, wishes he could be here. Um, but he was a king of these kinds of sermons. We, when I was on staff way, way, way back when I was a youth guy, we called them flipper sermons because we're going to flip all over the place in our Bibles. I'm going to do it this way. We're going to flip, but it's all going to be within the book of Acts, right? Actually, that's not true. It's all going to be within the writings of Luke, all right. So mainly the book of Acts, but we're going to go back into the gospel of Luke because Luke wrote both of them. And there are, there are seams between the two that actually are important for us to see. Right. He wrote two books and they tie together in ways that are important, particularly on the issue that we'll come to at the end of the message uh, to try to help us see some, some, what I'd say some important implications and applications of it. So let's start, let's start the flipper passages, all right? First place we're going to look is Acts chapter 9. And here's what I'd like to say is that prayer actually distinguishes the life of those who follow Christ, who are believers or disciples. And I'm going to show you this from two phrases in Acts chapter 9 that are actually describing Christians. Notice chapter 9 and verse 14. Let me backdrop real quickly. Saul has seen the Lord on the way to Tarsus. God uh, tells Ananias to go uh, see Saul. And, and Ananias is like, whoa, do you realize who this guy is? Right? I mean, this is a bad dude. And, and when he's talking about it, he actually describes what Saul was doing. But what it helps us see is actually the way believers were identified. So just to get the thought, verse 13, 9, 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now notice the parallel between verse 13, your saints, and the end of verse 14, all who call on your name, right? To be considered one of God's people is to be described as someone who calls on your name. They pray, Right? And it's the very heart of what it means to actually be the, 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 the child of God, the follower of Jesus Christ, a saint. That is someone who has been set apart by God for, by his grace, has been made his. He's been brought into a saving relationship with God. They're described as those who call on your name. Right? He's not saying people who called on your name. It's actually, these are the people who call on your name. They are the ones who gather to call on your name. Same thing down in verse 21. Look at what it says there. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? Who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. That's the very nature. And this is confirmed in, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, where, where Paul talks about all believers, right? Both uh, that call in the name of the Lord, both yours and ours, right? So, so how do you describe? I mean, if 
I mean, we have a name, Intercity Baptist Church, right? We don't see really any, any indication uh, that churches in the New Testament formed a name, right? So it was like the, you know, the first Baptist Church of Corinth, and then the church split off that was Second Baptist Church, and third, you know, it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't cool names. They were simply clusters of people who were identified by their relationship to God. They were the church of God at Corinth. And they were those who call on the name of the Lord. Because that's what it means to be saved. Romans chapter 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that language goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. After Cain had killed Abel and God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth, Seth had a son, and then it says, and then they began to call on the name of the Lord. Right? It, it identified their heart disposition as people who were looking to the Lord for salvation, who were looking to the Lord in worship, that were depending on the Lord as their only hope in life and death. They were people who were identified as prayers, as prayers. Right? So it's not like you get saved and maybe prayer should be a part of your life or prayer, you know, you'll, you'll start to pray someday. That's how you become a Christian is by calling on the name of the Lord. And, and that work of God in the heart is the result of the Spirit. Right? Remember, we received the Spirit, we're adopted, and the Spirit works in us so that we cry, Abba, Father. The cry of our heart becomes, Father. That's what the Spirit produces. It, it, is, it is such an essential part of the Christian life that without it, Right? I would say you would have no assurance of genuinely being a Christian. Right? If, you can, if you can live your life without prayer, then that would mean the Holy Spirit is not in you. And if the Holy Spirit is not in you, you are not a child of God. Right? Prayer, prayer is that much a part of what it means to be a Christian. So, so we cannot neglect it. We, we certainly can become cold. We can become uh, complacent. But the work of God by His Spirit is constantly going to be fighting against that. The impulse of our flesh is away from that. The work of the Spirit is toward that. And we need to recognize the importance of this because it's really rooted in how God has revealed himself as the true and living God. All throughout the Old Testament, the distinction is made between false idols and the true God. And you know what the difference between them highlighted again and again by the prophets, by the psalmists? The idols cannot answer prayer. They have eyes and cannot see. They have ears and cannot hear. They have hands and can do neither good nor harm. But God is not like that. That he actually can see and hear and can do good and can bring judgment. And so his people recognize that about him and, and cry out to him, call on his name for those things, right? that he is a God, Isaiah says, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That the eyes of the Lord, the prophet said to the king of, of Judah, the eyes of the Lord go to and forth throughout the whole earth so that he might see those whose heart are perfectly his so that he might be strong on behalf of that person. Right? That's the kind of person 
that God cultivates and calls to himself. In fact, he's described in the book of Psalms by the very title, O thou that hearest prayer. Right? That's, that's who God is. And if we're worshiping him, it's because we've recognized that about him. Those who know his name trust in him because he has never forsaken those who call on him. That's what the psalmist says. So if you know his name, you trust in him because he hears when we call. That's the dynamic reality of who God is. And so when, when, when Ananias says this to the Lord, he's simply saying, these are your people. These are the people that call on your name. It's the difference between those who don't know God and do know God, right? Because if you have faith, you go to a God who is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what faith is. You actually don't have faith if you're not going toward God for what he has for us. I mean, uh, there's a difference between faith and knowledge. Right? The demons know God exists. All kinds of people would pay lip service to God exists, but if we functionally live our lives as if his existence makes no difference. Right? I mean, he's, you know, yeah, there's a God, but, you know, I'm pretty much on my own. We wouldn't say it that way. But if we're never talking to him, we're never calling out to him, we're never expressing our need for independence on him then we're basically saying, I'm on my own. I'm I'm supposed to just do my thing and let God take care of his. Is nowhere near what we see taught or lived out in the scriptures. I don't think any faithful servant of Christ who wrote the scriptures for us or lived uh, obediently to them would would tell us, hey, you know, this whole prayer thing's a mystery. Just sort of let God do his thing. You do yours. So here's what I'd say is, if we think that way, we didn't get that from the Bible. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really that simple. Nothing in the scriptures tells us to be fatalistic. Nothing in the scriptures tells us that prayer is just about us sort of self-therapizing. That's not even a word, probably. Doing self-therapy. All right? You know, I'm supposed to, when I pray, I'm just sort of like talking out my feelings. I'm just sort of, you know, helping vent things out. And when I do that, it sort of makes me feel better. And I get, I get some relief and refreshment. And it's, it's really self-therapy. It's, 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 it's just me... Uh, talking out my problems. And God's given us this tool to talk out our problems so we feel better. You didn't get that from the Bible. That is not actually what prayer is. Prayer is personal communication between a believer and the God who is and is a rewarder that is, he does things for those who seek him. Right? That's why the scriptures say the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's why James can say, you do not have because you do not ask. Right? If my asking had nothing to do with me having, then James is lying. And I don't know about you, but I'm not prepared to call James a liar. Because he's writing the truth of God. And so, so we have to recognize that this is at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not on the side. 
It's not an add-on. Yeah, just trust Jesus, and maybe if you make a commitment to Christ, you should become committed to prayer. No, it is the heart. It'd be like me saying to you, all right, you've been born. It might be good if you breathe once in a while. You don't have to do it all the time, but every now and then you do need to take a breath or else you're going to be in trouble. Prayer is like our breath. It's how God sustains our spiritual life. It is the thing that God uses to mold and shape us and to accomplish his purposes. So so it's the very identity of a believer. It's, It's supposed to be the identity of a church. Boy, if people think about Intercity Baptist Church, I would love for them to think that's a church that prays. Right? One of the, one of the most encouraging things uh, over the course of the last couple of years was I got an email out of the blue from actually, so I'll tell you the name. Doug Bennett was the school administrator here late 60s, early 70s. Right, like back when the school was just starting, and for years served in a lot of different ministries. He got COVID, was in the hospital, desperately ill. I get an email from his wife, and his wife said, can you email Dave Dorn and ask him to be praying and have their church be praying? Because I know they pray. Right? That, that was just like joy into my heart. And, and the reality of it was, that's the kind of thing that I would, I, I, that j- I just love for anybody to think. You got a need for prayer? Hey, there's a group of people in Allen Park. They take prayer seriously. Let them know. They'll pray for you. Okay? Seek, seek their intercession. Right? That's, that's what we're supposed to be. Right? All the other things are great. I mean, God's given us enormous blessings. But, but honestly, you know, someday all of the external trappings of what God has done will be gone. The thing that's going to matter most is, did we seek God? Were we known as a people of prayer, real prayer? that we take it seriously because God has given us this great privilege to live a life of faith, which is a life of prayer, turning to him. And the early church understood it. Okay, so here, that, that's not, that wasn't much of a survey. Here comes the survey part. You ready? All right, I got, I got bored down a little bit there. Now we're going to do some, some, some moving. Here's the first thing I'd like to see, that it was the very fabric Prayer was the very fabric of their fellowship and unity. Go back to chapter 1, please. Chapter 1. They were devoted to and gave their strength to prayer. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is between the Lord's ascension and the day of Pentecost. Verse 14 says... These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Jump over to chapter 2 and verse 42. Chapter 2 and verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Okay, so I'll just say this in passing, right? Lots of churches, and I think at times, sometimes we think this way, right? If we're, like, we've got strong Bible teaching. We're a great church. We have good fellowship. We're a great church. We have good worship. That's why I take the breaking of bread, being observing the Lord, say, we're a great church. What about devoted to prayer? Right? That's where they were. They were devoted. They gave their strength to prayer. Is that a mark of the modern church? Is that a mark of, of our churches that were devoted to it, right? And they, they, they were united in this commitment. Notice it says one mind, one accord. They had that kind of unity of heart about it. The same kind of thing is expressed in chapter 5 and chapter 15. 
They maintained it as a priority for their congregation. They, you can see this in 42. This is the thing that they were devoted to, right? But look over to chapter 6 because it, they were so committed to it that it actually helped shape the structure of their church. The church grows, people are coming to Christ, there's needs in the church, and, and look at the, the institution of what we normally talk about, the selection of deacons, starting in verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, so think about what's going on, because here's the deal. I mean, these are widows who need food. I mean, I can't, I mean, if you're going to start ranking important needs among God's people, given what James says about pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. So, like, here's people because of the persecution. Everything's happening. These widows need care. And the apostles say, it's not desirable to whom? I think to the Lord. For us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to do this, it needs to be done, but we need to, as a congregation, make some decisions about how that can get done so that, verse 4, we can commit our strength, right? Be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, that's not to say that those men wouldn't pray. What it was saying is, this is the center and the engine of the church. We can't let it be threatened even by good things. That's how committed they were to it. Right? But how often could it be for us as believers and for churches and sometimes people serving in leadership in churches to think we're too busy to pray? We have too much we need to get done. There's stuff that has to happen. Right? The early church wasn't going to let that happen. They were not going to say, hey, we have to start doing all this stuff to the, to the neglect of prayer and the ministry of the word. It is something so essential to the very fabric of their fellowship and, and unity. And that's why when Paul writes to the churches in the pastoral epistles, he commands that prayer be offered in every place and that he wants the men to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Right? He, he thinks prayer is supposed to be the center of the assembly of God's people, that, that we need to pray together. And again, this is, this is so out of step with, with church culture and, and our culture. Right, because think about, I mean, I, you guys don't probably read them. I read them because it's, you know, partly my job, not just as a pastor, but I teach seminary and I teach future pastors. So, so I, you know, I read a lot of stuff about people telling you how to have a good church and all that. And the amount of emphasis on prayer is pretty lean, right? Not much said about it. And when it actually comes to planning the gatherings of God's people, you know, our culture can't handle, our culture can't handle silence. Our culture, our, the, the idea of having a dynamic church service, that takes prayer and squeezes it down. Because like people start to not be able to pay attention, their minds will start to drift, they'll fall asleep, they'll be bored. Right? I mean, again, I'd say, if someone could show me that in the Bible, I'll bow my knee to it. But if that's just human opinion about what 
feeds the appetites of humans, then it actually might be a prescription to having a church full of goats rather than sheep. Because if our heart is not stirred by prayer when we're together, it's possible there could be something wrong with the praying. But the first place I'd look at would be my heart. I mean, if, if, I, can't, if I can't find my heart stirred and engaged by the praying that's being offered, I would probably do a heart check because it's probably something about my heart that's the problem. Not the fact that the people of God are praying too much. Right? And we can have all kinds of, well, I could pray at home. Well, yeah, you could, but you couldn't have a congregational prayer meeting at home. And you couldn't be of one mind and of one accord with God's people praying all by yourself. Because prayer wasn't given to us as an individual, isolated thing. I mean, even the Lord's Prayer that we talk about, did you notice that the pronouns there are plural? It's not my Father who is in heaven. It's our Father. Give us this day our daily bread, not give me this day my daily bread. Because we were saved by Jesus Christ and brought into the fellowship of the Father and Son with those who are His. And our hearts are supposed to be filled with the fellowship that comes through praying together. That's where the early church was. Go back to chapter 1, please. Back to chapter 1. i got to pick up the pace. Look at verses 24 and 25. Just set the context. Uh, Judas is gone. They feel like they need to fill his slot. So they pick two men to put forward. Joseph, called Barsabbas, and Matthias. And notice verse 24. And they prayed. And said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So here's my point. The selection and commissioning of leaders was something that was surrounded with prayer. They, they commit this matter to the Lord. I don't think the casting of lots is the normative thing. It is that we need a decision from you, God, about who's to take this. So we're seeking you. Right? We want you to make this choice. In our context, it would be God working through the choice of his people, just like chapter 6 is. The apostles look to the congregation, and they say, you need to choose seven men. All right, so the congregation moves that. And in chapter 6, they prayed about that and appointed those men in that position of service. In chapter 13, the, the men are there praying and ministering to the Lord, and God moves Saul and Barnabas out to the work, and it says they prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them out. In Acts chapter 14, on the first missionary journey, the apostles are coming back through that area, and they appoint elders in the assembly. It says and when they had prayed and fasted, they ordained. Right, so the selection of leaders and the commissioning of workers for Christ is something that is supposed to be saturated with prayer. That the congregation of God's people is looking to the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest. Because that's what Jesus taught, right? Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers. So what did the early church do? They prayed to the Lord of the harvest. I mean, foolish people. They just trusted God. God said, pray for this. They prayed for that. And you know what God did? He answered their prayer. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. The selection and commission of leaders is by prayer as God works through it. Look, if you would, at chapter 
chapter 9. I'm going to look at a few of these because I want, to, I want you to see at least a, a pattern unfolding, I think. 9, uh, look at chapter 10. We looked at uh, already 13 and 14, but look at 9, 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, go to the straight called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Okay, so let me just stop right here. So, so here's a pivotal moment in the history of the church. The, the call of Saul of Tarsus. And, and two people involved in it are praying at that moment. Ananias is praying, and that's when he received direction from the Lord, and, and Saul is praying, and God's answering his prayer through Ananias. Right? So, so this pivotal moment Luke shows us is wrapped up in prayer. Look at chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. About the ninth, uh, actually, just so you can understand the context, verse 1. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So here is going to be the first step of the gospel toward the Gentiles. And and the recipient of it is someone who's committed to praying. Now drop down to verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the one who's going to take the message there, what is he doing when God does this pivotal work? He's praying, right? Just like Ananias and Saul, now you have Cornelius and Peter, and it's in the context of prayer that God does this. Go down to verse 30, okay, because Cornelius is describing it. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. Okay, so he was praying, and then God did this. He answered prayer in the moving forward of it. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. Here's Peter, again, telling how this came about, because it was like, why did you go to the Gentiles? And here's his answer, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying. Okay, I was praying, and God moved in this way. I already mentioned chapter 13. They're praying uh, to the Lord And God calls Saul and Barnabas. Look at chapter 22. Okay, and just look at verse 17, because here's another pivotal moment in the Apostle Paul's life. It says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. And then he receives the call to take the gospel to the Gentiles and, and go out from among them. Now you may say, well, this is, you know, those are, those are unique. And I'd say there are elements of them that are very unique. Right? But they also fit a pattern that Jesus exhibited in the gospel. You know, and, and we're going to look at it probably. I may just tell it to you for time's sake. But chapter 3, verse 21 records the baptism of Jesus. Luke says something when he records it, the other gospel writers don't say. It says, And while Jesus was praying, the Spirit descended upon him. The other gospel writers don't say anything about Jesus praying while he's being baptized. Luke does, because it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the descending of the Spirit upon him is the anointing that he receives. He describes it as he reads Isaiah in chapter 4, the anointing of the Spirit for him to do his messianic ministry. And you know where it comes in connection with? Jesus praying. He's talking to his Father. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is about to select his apostles. And Luke 6, 12 says he goes out into the mountain and spends the entire night in prayer. 
The very next verse is when he comes down, he calls the 12 apostles to, to come and follow. I think Luke is very clearly saying that Jesus' prayer and the selection of these servants were joined together, just like in the book of Acts. Right? That, that the work of God is supposed to be under the direction and advance of God, and we're in prayer about that. That it is actually prayer that helps put us in the position to receive the help of God about knowing what he wants us to do as we serve him. I don't think you're going to have visions and trances. I think it'll be that he'll take his word and he'll direct your steps. He'll work on your heart, putting in it that which is pleasing in his sight. But God has not left his people on their own. Jesus didn't ascend to heaven and say, okay, guys, do a good job for the next 2,000 years. No, he specifically said, when I ascend, I will send my comforter. I will send the one who will give you the enablement that you need. He will help you to do the things that I want done, to carry out my mission. And so God has equipped us to spend and be spent for him, and that has to be connected to prayer. That's where we discern the will of God. We receive wisdom from him, James 1 says. It is how God fills us with all spiritual wisdom, Colossians chapter 1 says. We need that from God, and that happens in conjunction with prayer. If we're not praying for the direction and advance of the mission, we're out of step with what the early church was doing. Go to chapter 4, please. Chapter 4. It was the key, it was the key to their courage and protection in the face of persecution. They began to obey Jesus and preach the gospel, and they were told not to, but they said, hey, we have to obey God rather than men. And, and so they, they actually faced threatenings and, and persecution. And notice, notice what their response is in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Right? That's prayer. They lifted their voices to God with one, one heart, one mind, one voice. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage? This is Psalm 2. And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice, and when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They they had been warned by Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21 and Luke chapter 22. Jesus had warned all through what's recorded for us in the book of Luke about the potential of persecution that they had. And, and the Lord modeled how they should face it, right? Prayer for one another. Peter, he looks at Peter and says, Satan has asked permission to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Right? They go into the garden and he says, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. He wants them to pray as their protection. He prayed for his enemies in Luke 23. 
He prayed, committing himself to God in the face of the persecution that came, just like Peter says. He entrusted him to himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus had modeled this for them. They step up to the plate, so to speak, and they start to face it, and they pray. Right? They pray and, and they ask God to note what's happening, but to give them confidence and boldness and power. Right? They, they understood that the way that anxiety about persecution will go, right? We, we hear that text in Philippians 4 a lot, right? Do, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything pray. Do you know one part of anxiety is? Being anxious about what your enemies can do to you. Right? And and anxiety about your enemies takes the shape of fear. And prayer is the answer to that. Is to recognize the threat that can come against us before Christ and take and roll that over to God. So that the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That we don't have to worry about what persecution may come against us because God will protect us. He will give us what we need. He will provide for us the thing that's needed. The church in Acts knew that, right? They didn't take a, you know, a poll or a survey to see, hey, can we craft our message a little differently so that we can sort of skirt the gap between their threats and, and, you know, our lives. No, they said, Lord, we need to obey you and we need to preach this gospel clearly and confidently. So please help us. Give us the strength that we need to do that. And the days are coming, right? When, when we, we will face this, right? I mean, there's already the sound of the approaching problems for believers in the workplace. There's already squeeze and tension with believers, with family members that don't know Christ. There's already the sounds of approaching trouble for churches that hold to what the Scriptures say. Don't be anxious about it. Don't let fear fill your heart. God will take care of us. God will provide our needs. God will protect us. It doesn't mean that we'll be rescued from every conflict. It means we'll have exactly what we need at the time we need it so that God can be glorified in us, whether by life or by death. Right? Whatever God wants is exactly what we need, and God will care for us exactly where we need it. And you won't, you won't have a heart that's comfortable with that apart from prayer. That's the point. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. You you will lose sleep and be filled with stress and anxiety about your family relationships, your job, your, your life, about your relationship to the larger culture. You'll be filled with anxiety and stress about that unless you understand how Jesus handled it and how he told his disciples to handle it. And he did, and they did, and it's our turn to. We need to be people who have that kind of confidence in prayer. Notice again verse 30, end of verse 29, may speak your word with all confidence or boldness. And verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God in boldness. Because prayer for them 
was the key to power and boldness in the work of Jesus Christ. Because prayer is the means by which we obtain the Spirit's work in our ministry. And I think at times we struggle with that because we, um, we, we have lots of internal objections. We, we have lots of wrestling matches that go on. I, I think bad theology has hurt the people of God, right? There's people who, uh, who think like this, right? So they look at the normal state, or the, and I'm going to put it in quotes, or the normal state of Christendom, and they look at the New Testament, and they go, those two things don't match. Right, what we see in the Bible, and what we see mainly around us, are not like each other. Okay, and that forces people to come to some kind of an explanation. One way of explaining it is to go, well, that's because the normal pattern of the church is actually not like the New Testament. That's some second blessing. That's some second experience. That's something that actually is sort of reserved and hidden for people who find the spiritual secret, for people who attain to some level of Christian maturity that's beyond most people. And the reality of it is most of the church is carnal, and that's why we really need to get people to this deeper life, higher life, victorious life. Right, And then, then they start to make that kind of case, and you get all kinds of squirrely theology that basically keeps filling the church up with goats then. Because the real problem is not everyone who claims to be a believer is actually a believer. And if you make being a Christian simply that you're a part of a church... You fill up the church with nominal Christians. That is Christians only in name. Christians who don't care about praying, don't care about reading the Bible, don't care about worship, don't care about Christ. They're just happy they're going to heaven, they think. Because there's lots of manipulative religion out there. Show up on Christmas and Easter. Show up and tag once in a while and everything will be okay. Because it pays... And I know it's going to sound very harsh, all right? Uh, so take it, take it out of love, all right? It pays for churches to tolerate nominal Christianity. I mean, it does. Because the bigger the crowd, the more you can benefit from it. Right, that's why you can have lapsed and then fill in your, fill in your descriptor. Right? Well, they're, 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 yeah, they're still this, but they're just lapsed or they're just, you know, they're just whatever. Because to really call people to look at their heart and see if it matches what God says regeneration produces is divisive in the true biblical sense of the term. The kind of divisive Jesus was. Who said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do not cast out demons, work many miracles? And I will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. For there are people who hear my words and go away and don't do them. They're like a person who builds his house on sand and the storm comes and washes it away. But the person who hears my word and does it, that's the person who builds his house on a rock. Storms come and it stands. Right? That, that's, that's what the Bible calls us to. And, and sometimes uh, people's souls have been betrayed by people who just want to build big churches or, or keep benefiting from nominal Christianity. And people have been left in a lifeless state thinking they're Christians and are going to wake someday before Jesus and have him go, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Right? I don't know about, I don't know about oof, you, but man, that is the last thing that I want to be accountable for. To stand before the Lord and think I let people wander in lostness rather than have them get upset at me. Rather than have them think, well, you know, we gotta be, we gotta be nicer. There's nothing nicer than caring about the eternal destiny of somebody. Right? That the church is supposed to be people who share the life of God given to them by the presence of the Spirit because they now have access to God through Christ. We're something less than what Jesus wants us to be if we're not living out this kind of confidence that the Spirit of God is actually supposed to be at work among us, that we're supposed to be asking God for the gift of the Spirit. And, and here's, I don't have time to unpack it all, but here's the thing is we, we, we see these false theologies and then we back away from biblical truth. Because right? the fact is when someone talks about, when we sing, right? Come Holy Spirit, come and thy people bless. We're not saying that the Holy Spirit is somehow not omnipresent. Just like when James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If God is everywhere present with the fullness of his being, then how does he draw near to anything? Well, it's not a spatial point. It's an expression of his work. Move in power, Lord. Come, Spirit, and bless your people. When it says be filled with the Spirit, it doesn't mean God opens up your head and pours more Holy Spirit into you. It means He controls you. It means He is at work in you. And we just have let the charismatics and the the, the prosperity people, the name and claim of people back us into a position where any fresh experience of the Spirit's work, it, it makes us scared. And the fact is, we desperately need the Spirit to fill us. We desperately need the Spirit to work among us. Because if God's going to work, Here's what Jesus was saying. It's good for you that I go. Because if I go, I will send another comforter. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the Spirit coming. I mean, if the Spirit, if the Spirit's coming or being sent is, is anything, it should be understood by us as language to accommodate our finite brain. Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, but Jesus is going to go to heaven and he's going to send the Spirit. Well, well, he's already here. Yeah, I know that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when he shows up, things happen. That's what we're talking about. When the Spirit comes, things change. And you know what the gap between that and our need is, it's what they're doing right here. It's praying. We should be busy. We should speak the word. We should do what God wants us to do. But at the end of the day, something has to happen that we cannot manufacture. It's only the spirit who can convince Men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's only the Spirit who can take the Word and actually change people, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, right? We all beholding with a glass the glory of the Lord are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Lord, the Spirit. He's the only one who can do it. So between my preparation, my speaking, your study, your talking, your serving, and what could come from it is prayer. God, 
please do this. Help us to do it with confidence. Help us to do it in the strength that you supply. Would you please open eyes, change lives? God, please do this. Right? And it's easy for us, it's easier for us to forget that gap and think it just depends on us. Right? And and that's evidenced when we don't pray. When we don't cry out to God. When we think, well, you know, if I just say the right thing, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. Because we think it's automatic. Or it's some kind of mechanical principle rather than a relationship of complete dependence on God that exalts him and humbles us. We, we, have to, we have to see the importance of this. If Jesus would go spend a whole night in prayer, if Jesus would go into the garden and spend at least three hours praying before he faced the cross and plead with his friends to pray with him, If the Apostle Paul would write to letter after letter to church after church and say, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. How can we do any less? How can we? Because we're not Jesus. We're not Paul. We need the Spirit to work in answer to prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have promised that the good gift that you will give to us if we seek you, ask and seek and knock, will come to you like a father, uh, to a loving father who gives good gifts, is that you'll give us the work of the Spirit. And so we ask. We ask for it in this very moment that you might kindle in our hearts a fresh, zeal to pray, that you might kindle in our congregation a renewed commitment to begin and bathe everything we do in prayer. And would you please hear and answer? There are so many needs represented in this room for which we are insufficient but there is nothing too hard for you. With you, nothing is impossible. And so we ask that you would show your mighty power, that you would work among us so that all we can do is step back in awe of your greatness and give you praise and thanks. Lord, please show yourself strong on our behalf, as we put our hearts completely in yours and trust you to do your work in your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.